Today's businesses are on a vigilant watch for threats in an ongoing cyber war. It's time to get real-world solutions to protect and secure your valuable business information anytime, anywhere. Welcome to Cybersecurity America with Josh Nicholson. You're about to gain special access into a world of restricted information and a backstage pass to the inner sanctum of cybersecurity operations. Here's your host, Joshua Nicholson. Now, don't forget to hit like, subscribe, comment, share, and turn on those notifications so you don't miss an exciting episode. Thank you, Josh. Just a couple of reports that have come across the Deep CTI desk this week that I wanted to bring your attention to. The first one is the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA, acknowledged the active exploitation of a CVE, it's a critical severity command injection flaw that exists in Zyxel networking devices, which is CVE 2023-28771. This was a flaw that was patched back on April 25th, but there are plenty of devices that were still left exposed. So many exposures existed that it did predicate ESA to actually have to release this report. And there were additional reports coming out that all the way back on May 26th, they were seeing attacks being launched by Mirai Botnet, as well as other, as well as other threat actors to try to install malware. And this goes along with the other report that we're taking a look at this week, which is that Barracuda Barracuda Networks also had a flaw in their email software, which apparently has been exploited since October. This particular bug is tracked as CVE 2023-2868, and it's a remote command injection vulnerability uh, that stems from incomplete input validation of user-specified .tar files, which are used to pack or archive multiple files. Specifically, this has been being exploited, as I said, since October, and it was used to download malware into several different victims. Specifically, these packages were tracked as Saltwater, Seaside, and Seaspy. Saltwater is a malicious module for the SMTP daemon that Barracuda ESG uses. The module contains backdoor functionality and also has the ability to upload or download arbitrary files, execute commands, and provide proxy and tunneling capabilities. Seaside was capable of creating a persistent backdoor and it can be activated using a magic packet that's known only to the attacker but would appear innocuous to anyone else looking. So this is, once again, we're looking at what can only be described as the large focus on supply chain attacks that are coming from a lot of threat actors. They want to look at routing systems. They want to look at IT and security companies that have a lot of access to different victim networks, especially because a lot of these different activities require administrative access off the bat to be able to fully integrate into a network. So these are ripe targets to be focused on by threat actors, especially with the Barracuda Network specific report. This is exactly the type of activity that threat actors are looking for. The ability to figure out a, an unknown vulnerability with especially security software and then be able to exploit it to conduct data exfiltration or at a minimum just gain access to victims and either sell that access or even sit on that access until they have an implant or some sort of necessary want or need to then access these systems. This is why at Deep Seas we regularly report and integrate with attack surface reduction teams and vulnerability management teams on the level of threat that's posed by different vulnerabilities, being able to gauge out what should be patched quicker, what looking at threat actor activity, being able to bring that kind of information into the conversation so vulnerability managers, attack surface reduction personnel can really understand how this can be weaponized and what kind of effect could occur aside from just something as basic as a CVSS score. But in addition to that, we always integrate with these other teams to really fully understand whether or not something is as critical as it may say, or is it more critical than, say, the low score, and then compare that to the active exploitation that we see and the constant monitoring of chatter on the dark web 
um, on what might be being used and what types of accesses are being sold to give us an idea of what may be being leveraged out there and also what might be leveraged in the future just by seeing what types of accesses are being looked for on those dark web markets. But that's all I have for intelligence this week. Back to you, Josh. Thank you, Aaron. Appreciate that. That was an enlightening Intel brief. Welcome to Cybersecurity America. Joshua Nicholson here. Today's episode is going to be on cloud security. One of the new environments, new paradigm shifts we had in computing in the last decade or so has been this move to online for everything, applications on tap, virtualization, complete move to the cloud. However, those types of changes have caused havoc with information security departments. Old school incident responders that are accustomed to dealing with computers that are on-prem and being able to have physical access to them, that whole model and the architecture changes when you move to the cloud. So what we wanted to do today is we wanted to delve into that, and I wanted to bring an expert on in order to be able to help us sift through this. And really, the objective of today is to get enough information to make everyone understand a few basic principles about cloud computing, and then get into some security controls that you can turn on like guard duty and how that utilizes CloudTrail and you get security hub and some Lambda security and some malware stuff. So we want to get into some of those details. So you know, the art of the possible and that that way you can have these further conversations as we move forward. So I want to introduce you to the man, the myth, the legend, Martin Bro. Martin <laughs> has over 20 years of experience in information security, starting back in 1999, working with secure communication systems for the United States Marine Corps. Over the past decade, he has set a heavy focus on email security, malware analysis, including reverse engineering, and then SIM system logging, cloud-based threat hunting. Martin's main expertise is in the IR space with security design, training, and assisting in detection and response playbook writing. Martin has spoken at many conferences, including DEF CON, Black Hat, DerbyCon, and really enjoys speaking at B-Sides conferences. Martin has been featured on a few security-themed podcasts and has written for many security publications, including Pentest Magazine and Cyber Defense Magazine. Welcome to the show, Martin. Really great to have you again, man. Thank you very much. I appreciate you inviting me on here. Yeah, that's great. Martin, you and I worked together at CoFence. You were what position? Were you head of my engineering? or I was, Yeah, I was the manager of the security engineering team there for the security operations center. Yeah, and you really did a great job running our cloud systems and all our infrastructure for us to do phishing yeah, we, events we, around we the world. We definitely built some cool stuff there for sure. Yeah, so tell me now, what do you do? You work at ARM now, right? Yep, I'm working for ARM. I'm the senior manager for the cyber defense operations team. We're, we're focused on making sure the company stays secure and there's constant threats and constant battle of thwarting the the attacks. I always enjoy a good day of never knowing what's going to happen. Yeah. So I think it's you're, you get, it's fair to say your day changes. <laughs> yeah, my, my day is not a day. It's just all day, every day. But right. it's good. And, and we talked about a while back, just the shift in computing. You and I went in the Marine Corps around the same time. I didn't do the full 20, but... It, at the same time. And it was really, it was interesting to see them go from PC-based systems where it was DOS 622 and you were command line and so forth, all the way to where Windows 95 had come out. And that was the latest thing, then Windows 98. And just to see where we're at, where now we're computing is all in the cloud and where things have shifted. But what have you noticed over this time period, how computing has changed? And is it good, better, or? It's, it's a, every, I think... We have this 10-year shift where it just becomes a completely different animal. I think that when you look at it, when I look back on, on the past like 20 years, there's a 10-year span where things are consistent, they're hardware-based, they're, you've got companies innovating in servers, hardware, innovating in how they build out these server systems. And then you've got the next 10 years where everyone's innovating on how to take everything and virtualize it. And when it started with, when you initially had that, you started messing with vSphere and everyone was like, dude, vSphere is crazy awesome. And you're like, okay, what is vSphere? Back in like 2002, 2003, you're like, what is vSphere? So you start building out these virtual servers and like, this is pretty cool. I'm, I have a DL360 here. I'm building out some virtual systems and everyone's like, cool. 
All right, how do we secure that? Because right now it's sitting in this server rack over here, but it doesn't really exist there. It's on that machine though. So like, how do we secure that one? Like I can put this physical one behind this door, but how do we keep people out of this one? You know, it, back in the day, it was the same operating system. It was all Windows. So you just go through your basic Windows operating system procedures, right. best practices. So when I look at now the new 10 years moving forward, like it's going to be, it's going to be a huge shift in, because I, it's interesting that you, I've noticed the last two years, things have started to shift back to hybrid. Like everyone was pushing real, real virtual. And now I think a lot of people are going hybrid. I think they're going back to on-prem. I've seen a lot of companies that I've done some work with lately that are focusing both on having that hybrid environment because they want to be able to have that physical kickback if their virtual environment goes down. Um, and I think a lot of that might even stem from lack of trust in uptime availability. Yeah, we're just out of service on, on some big arm there. Yeah. So I guess just for the listeners, just to make sure we cover the cloud computing, we've got really three platforms that are out there right now um, that you have to worry about in customer environments. This is the big gorilla in the room. Right? Azure, which has just really exploded. Up to, I've seen some huge yeah. market share gain with Azure. And then GCP for Google's version of cloud. I don't see that too much. We have a few I know of. But for the most part, it's AWS, Azure. And I'm seeing some, a lot of organizations with both. They have yeah. both. There's definitely, that definitely exists. You see a lot of AWS and Azure. That's across the board. You see so why do you a lot think of, they get both like that? What is the bearing difference? I think I'm the bearing difference is it lies in this. You have AWS. That's a full cloud computing system. You've got companies that are building and designing systems. They're virtualizing their stuff. They're putting it in AWS. At the same time, they're virtualizing their Microsoft environment. They're virtualizing their exchange systems. They're virtualizing their email systems. And so while they're doing that, they're still maintaining that Microsoft operating system. And within Microsoft, you've got all of those built-in features within the E3 and the E5 licenses that Microsoft offers you. So you've got Azure, you've got your exchange, you've got all this, but all of your systems that they access are in AWS because you're not building out your virtual environment in Azure. You're building out your virtual systems within AWS environment. You're using Microsoft to build your enterprise infrastructure and you're using AWS to build out your corporate applications side of the house. So you're going to have that hybrid. And then you've got the companies that are running GCP and and AWS. And I very rarely see only one anymore. At one point, there was Google. We're a G shop. And they claim they stick to, I'm, we're a G shop. Everything's a G. We're straight up Google. And I'm like, okay, all right. So where are your servers? We have those in AWS. Okay. So you're not, your cloud computing is hybrid between Google and Asia. So you have those three providers. I think you have deployment models and service models. So what are the different deployment models? You have the public cloud, the private cloud, the hybrid cloud, and the community cloud. And I think what you're saying is private cloud would be like Netflix. Everyone can get to Netflix. Everybody can consume those services. That would yep. be a private cloud. I mean, a public cloud. Public cloud, so yeah. Private, private cloud would be like a private organization. That's where my mail server is, where my yep. file shares, that's where SharePoint's going to live. That's in my private cloud there. Now, if I have a hybrid, it's almost as if it's a private with a DMZ, a cloud DMZ, so to speak, where you may have a section of it is public and you have a se section of it that is private. And then I guess community would be a whole group of those, right? Community would be, yeah, so it would basically be like what you're talking about. You have people that are building applications or they're building systems and they're allowing you to come in and build your own as well. Yeah, the definition is community cloud allows systems and services to be accessible by a group of organizations. By, by groups of organizations. So it's not you're not going to get proprietary buckets. You're going to get the, you know, the availability of all of this data that's within here and it's shared data yeah. and whatever that application is. Yeah, and then it says hybrid cloud is a mixture of public and private cloud in which the critical activities are performed using private cloud while the non-critical activities are performed using public cloud. So it's almost... 
like we were talking about, there's a DMZ of public cloud services. For- you, you can call it a DMZ. I think for the most part, they're, they would be considered separate entities that are connected via connectors within AWS, within your cloud environment that can connect those. So like back in the day, when you're thinking about like the standard OSI model, like you're building out a, a DMZ, you've got your firewall, you've got your switches, routers, things like that. And then you're going to build a DMZ where you can have to come in and be able to come in from the outside and hit here, but you can't get to the servers without authenticating through. And that's what this is, but it's a little bit different because it's broken out into completely separate entities and you have to connect them using things like IAM and whatever your authentication method is going to be. And it kind of functions and on paper could look like a DMZ, but technically it's... Yeah, okay. That makes sense. And then I see the service models, Martin. So we have infrastructure service, platform as a service, software as a service, anything as a service. We even have ransomware as a service. Ransomware as a service. Infrastructure as a service. So some of these terms, just to make sure we're clear here, where infrastructure as a service provides access to fundamental resources such as physical machines, virtual machines, virtual storage, et cetera. Now, platform as a service, PaaS, provides the runtime environment for applications, development, and deployment tools. So software as a service, or SaaS, and you hear about that a lot, SaaS model allows user software applications as a service to end users. So in many ways, it depends on what area of responsibility that you have that that you're responsible for. So infrastructure, it's the servers, it's the equipment that's passing the data and doing compute. A lot of times you consider that impute platform as if you needed a HX controller or you needed a FireEye controller, and that is a platform that you can use to do various different things. And then software as a service would be just like Netflix or it'd be like your Google Mail or something that you're not responsible for anything. You don't even have to time pay a fee for it. And I think a lot of the times you'll use combinations of different technologies in each of these. You'd have multiple cloud providers. You'd have a PaaS here that's connected to a SaaS. So you'd have a combination of all this in a decently sized organization to say. Yeah. And then you have now EDR controllers where you're seeing some of these EDR products going from on-prem to all cloud controllers. Yeah. But then they still want to have one on-prem now because we've lost connectivity at times from the desktops have lost connectivities with some of the cloud controllers just because of network latency issues. So maybe yeah. we keep one on-prem. So I, it's interesting to see all the EDR controllers. Everyone wants to go to cloud and makes it really easy from a managed services perspective, but from a redundancy, not all the time. Yeah. And I think that's actually, I think one of the leading factors to why we see this uptick in, in Microsoft lately within Azure, because with mm-hmm. Microsoft Defender being able to do that from both environments seamlessly it just it's basically an out-of-the-box setup for you um, yeah i've been really impressed with microsoft defender we rolled it at some big some pretty big companies lately and i used to never say microsoft and i'm on the same boat i'm on the same boat i was a diehard microsoft did very little correctly yeah but honestly with all the testing that i've run and all the malware that my ISP hates seeing the traffic coming out of my house with that I'm constantly testing. Really, one of my main, the go-to when someone asks me, what do you use for your home, for your systems, your personal systems? I'm like, I'm using Microsoft Defender. It's It logs better than everything else. And it it sees things the way I want it to, and I can upload the logs to so you. Use Defender on your personal PC. I use my I use Defender on all my personal devices. There you go. And it scares my wife because she doesn't see that cool little logo down at the bottom anymore. She's like, "Where's my antivirus the logo down at the bottom?" And I'm like, nah, yeah. "You don't need that. You don't need that to make you feel better." Yeah, I was at a CISO meeting last week in DC, and I'm getting messages from my son, and it's screenshots, and he's got a virus. He's locked up his computer. And he's texting me. I don't know what to do, but don't worry. I'm gonna I'm gonna fix this. I'm already on the phone with Microsoft talking to him about it. What? Hang up the phone. You're not talking to Microsoft. So you called the number that was in the pop up. Yeah, because yeah, there's a drive by malwarentizing <laughs> popped up and says you have to call this number. And he sees the virus and says, "Okay, Microsoft wants me to call him." Yep. And uh, no, stop, stop. Yeah, that's what my grandma. Start the computer off for now. Dad, we'll get back to you when we get there. 
So we see, golly, all these different models. One of the things I noticed too is there's always fear of lock-in with a certain cloud provider. You can't move to another one easily. Isolation failure, management interface compromise in some of these cloud providers. You can't, you don't know some of the vulnerabilities, some of their console ports that they have. Yep. And then I think when we're looking at just a heavy use of virtualization, I mean, for everybody that knows this, virtualization is a technique which allows the sharing a single physical instance of an application or resource among multiple organizations or tenants, customers. It does this by assigning a logical name to a physical resource and providing a pointer to that physical resource when demanded. So that's one of the keys of cloud computing is a virtualization of servers and operating systems. They run into the cloud. They don't run in data in in racks in your own personal rack data centers and now in other people's racks data centers, providing a combined computing environment for you. And so virtualization should do a lot of different things. So for instance, patching, you can do a snapshot of a virtual machine. So if the patch blows it up, you can snap it back to where it was an hour or two ago, wherever, whenever you do your snapshots at. So virtualization allows you to do that. It allows you to vMotion things where you can move a virtual machine where it's living on one ESX server. You can move it to another environment all wrong uh, on another side of the world. Before, we would have to package that up and, and put it in, on UPS and ship it somewhere for, for yeah, us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it was a physical. Now you can do screenshots and, and so forth. So it helps in many of those different areas. You'll see terms such as SOA infrastructure, so service-oriented architecture, help to use applications as a service for other applications. This is when you really start to be able to invent a lot of things when you take applications that can leverage other apps. Also, you have grid computing. If you have the term grid computing, it refers to distributed computing in which a group of computers from multiple locations are connected with each other to achieve a common objective. Well, you want to talk about that's been a shift, right? So in the 80s and 90s were all mainframes. So it was all centralization. They want everything going to one machine and it was all terminal servers. Then the late 90s is we're going distributed and everybody has PCs and we're going to build servers. And then so they build all these servers. And then what do you think? Man, there's too many servers here. So we need to virtualize those. Let's have everybody go back to one piece of iron again. No, I got a better idea. How about Citrix and terminal servers? Yeah. You don't, you have a thin client, no desktop and everything's central. So you went from this central distributed central and it's just really interesting to see that. I, yeah, it is. But when you look at companies like manufacturing companies and companies where they need they need systems on let's say they're a furniture company that they build furniture and they've got they need 20 plus machines sitting out on their floor you don't want to have to build out all these crazy big machines put them out there have a boot up just have a pixie boot off of the network and the operating system on it is literally pulled from your cloud and it's just just displaying a virtual desktop and that's all this little tiny box does like those the intel nucs are really good with that yeah. and you can set those up and it cost you a couple hundred bucks per and you don't have to pay for a billion licenses and you don't have to worry about steve the guy with two fingers on the saw over there coming over and destroying the computer on accident and messing up the operating system or getting a virus installed on it because it's wiped every night when you turn it off and it's rebuilt in the morning because it doesn't need to, it doesn't need to be persistent. And that's a huge advantage to that. And it just seems a lot of companies, I went and looked up what like are the most popular cloud computing platforms that you're going to see in different organizations from a security perspective. It's good to know what the URLs are to these things, especially to the legitimate ones. You use phishing emails for Salesforce, for instance. It would really be nice if you were able to lock it down where people only went to the Salesforce IP address for the known vendor that you have. Yeah. Uh, so you have what? Platform salesforce.com, Appistry, looks like Appistry is a platform for efficient delivery of runtime application. AppScale, yep. open source platform for App Engine for Google applications. AT&T allows access to virtual servers, manages virtual infrastructure. There's another thing called Engine Yard, is a Rails application on cloud computing platform. Anomaly provides infrastructure as a service as a platform. Infrastructure as a service platform. That's not platform as a service then. <laughs> FlexiScale offers cloud computing platform, flexible scale on demand. G Cloud 3, private cloud solution. Gizmox, visual web UI platform, best suited for developing new web apps, modernizing legacy apps on ASP.NET. 
Go Grid, Google Long Jump. You've heard of Long Jump? Yeah. Uh, Microsoft Azure, <clears throat> OrangeScape offers platform as a service for non-programmers building an app as easy as a spreadsheet. Now, Rackspace, I've heard of Rackspace, a new guy at Ian Wine went to Rackspace, provides servers on demand, and then, of course, Amazon EC2. Now, from a security perspective, when I start looking at, I was doing some research on AWS, I thought that would be the best place to look like Security Hub is the place that you go to view CloudTrail logs, that kind of stuff within your AWS environment. I see that that the real, the things you want to focus on in the security hub, you want to be able to turn on guard duty. Guard duty is in your AWS account and our guard duty automatically starts to monitor these four log services. We, and I'll ask you more about these log services in a minute and tell me if I'm wrong. But you have AWS CloudTrail events. So everything event that occurs within your cloud environment, API calls, new objects created, all that kind of stuff end up in CloudTrail logs. And then you have CloudTrail management events. This is when I think when you provision something new or you change something, it's not just the creation of data, but it's the configuration of something. Is yep. the management logs. Then VPC flow logs. And then DNS logs. So what can you tell us about those four different logs and guard duty? If you're going to secure your environment, the first thing you're going to want to do is ensure that you turn on guard duty. You want to ensure that your CloudTrail logs are being retained. You have your VPC logs, your DNS logs. But what can you say about that? Yeah. So when you're talking about out of the box, we're we're just building out our environment. We're trying to secure it. We're trying to turn on. And you start up trying to get into your security hub. You've got some what would be considered the standard, the base standard of what you need. You've got to be watching your access controls. So you have to be watching how your accounts are being configured. You have to watch how your um, instances are being built. So you need to log when things are being turned on and turned off. You need to watch all these things. So when you look at, when you go to, you can go to Amazon, you can just, you can Google, what are the main things I need for guard duty? for example. And when you're, when you start getting into it, there's a lot of very easy things. So like we have these basic four things, but within those basic four things, you have a massive breakdown and it starts to branch out quite a bit because once you start building out all of your infrastructure, you start building out your different types of users, the different levels, what they're able to accomplish, how you enable your two-factor authentications within there. How do you watch for that? How do you start watching for what we call impossible logins, where someone's logging in from two different IP addresses at the same time within those this IAM? So grabbing all of those four basic logs types within your environment is fantastic. But then you have to know how to make all that actionable. What to do with it. Yeah. So you could log till you're blue in the face, but you really have to know how to filter that. So I'm told, so I'm reading here, AWS CloudTrail logs provide you a history of AWS API calls for your account. And the API calls made using the AWS console, the AWS SDKs for the software development kit, command line tools, and certain AWS services. CloudTrail helps you identify which users and accounts invoked AWS APIs for services that support CloudTrail, the source IP address from where the calls were invoked, and the time in which the calls were invoked. So this looks like your central repository for accountability of events that are occurring within your AWS is CloudTrail, right? Yep. And then it's saying that CloudTrail management events are known as control plane events. And these events provide insight into management operations that are performed on resources in your AWS environment. Then the VPC logs. So VPC logs are flow logs. It's a feature of Amazon VPC that captures information about the IP traffic to and from network interfaces attached to the Amazon Elastic Cloud Computing or EC2 instance in your AWS environment. So with this uh, VPC logs, essentially where you would do normal network intrusion detection center type activity here. So it looks like if I have an EC2 Linux instance and I have an EC2 Windows instance and I want to see traffic that may be going between them, I would I would do I would start scarfing through the VPC flow logs. Through your VPC right? flow logs, yes, absolutely. Okay. So what you'd want to do when you start jumping in there is you essentially want to query basically like start with your Linux box. So, so take that IP address. You see, you know, that's a known IP address. 
I want to see any and all traffic coming out of there. Mm-hmm. And then you filter that down. Say, I want to see any and all traffic that's going in and or out. So ingress and egress going to this particular box. And if you have things like you certain boxes, like, I don't know, like a domain controller or something that you've built in there and you're going through that and you're looking, you should never see traffic going out of that box to an external IP address. And if you do, you definitely have a problem. Tell me this, the VPC logs, are they on by default? If I have four or five servers in an environment, one VPC, and do I have to turn that on or all traffic between those, if we'll, like the traffic between the Linux server and the Windows server, like we were talking about before, would that just be natively captured? I would see that traffic or I would have to configure VPC to capture events coming from host A to host B. You'd have to configure it. It just doesn't do it by default. Is that right? So that's essentially correct. So when you're creating that VPC within your environment, because each VPC component is built up of different things. So you have your, basically your size, you've got your, the gateway it's going to use and all of this stuff. So all of that is configured and it's logged by default once you hit go and it's created. So once that's going and you hit it, anything that's coming into that VPC that you created is going to have that, those flow logs are going to be captured. Okay. Um, that's got, okay. That makes sense. So I could, I could do a lot with VPC flow logs. You, everything you need to network. I can't say everything. You can do a lot with what you need. So typically during a, an investigation where I'm trying to determine how or where a threat actor had gotten in or what all they touched and we have known time or we have known IP address or we have known callouts to a C2, I will immediately start going through flow logs and identifying those IOCs within those flow logs and dumping it out to a massive CSV. Typically you're going to get more than 10,000 lines. You have to filter that through, but that's going to, that report will take a while to generate usually. Mm. Um, So then you also have DNS logs. So you're seeing all the host name queries that are happening in there. In the host name queries, you're going to see if that threat actor got on one of your boxes and started doing reconnaissance, you're going to see all that traffic coming out. You'll see any and all kind of pings. You'll see high traffic ports coming out, calling back if there's any kind of dropper that was pulled. And the nice thing is, is that when you're building these out within AWS, you can turn all this on by default. So once you create these, this is ready to go. You don't have to do a lot to get these logs. You just have to do a lot to retain them because there can be a lot of noisy traffic. And I find that most people don't retain these logs long enough, but you kind of have to be picky and choosy with it where you look at it and go, okay, I have an EC2 large. It's very important to me. There's a lot of necessary things on here. I need to create this VPCs. We need to make sure we're logging all this traffic, but we have over here, we have just some nonsensical things. We only need to do very minimal and we don't need to retain too much because it's only going. How much you would need to retain and how frequent is definitely a part of it. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, that can vary based on the importance level of whatever that box is. So tell me this. I see there's optional guard duty services to it as well. So there's a guard duty Lambda protection. So this mm-hmm. is serverless. So it says yeah. Lambda protection is an optional enhancement to Amazon guard duty. Presently, Lambda network activity monitoring includes Amazon VPC flow logs from all Lambda functions for your account. Even those logs, you don't use VPC networking. Yeah. I guess this is where we've always complained. We said, well, serverless, how do you protect that? How does this, what does the cybersecurity person do with serverless? And it's just really our ability to log this, but it looks like they have a function that uh, has some advanced capabilities here. Yeah. Cause it's, I mean, it's essentially logging in Python, which can be very robust. You can send different types of formats and it can log quite a bit like max memory used and memory sized and request IDs and things like that. And all that information could all be dragged out. So you've got like a Linux box or something that can work. It can run on systems that are running custom web applications that you have built running in a bizarre environment or even a custom environment. 
So it sounds like if you're going to use guard duty through the security mm-hmm. hub and you do have Lambda functions and you do, are you doing serverless, then you may want to look into this Lambda, Lambda protection. And it looks like to be highly recommended analysis pack you'd put on top of the logs. Absolutely. Yep. Then I say guard duty EKS protection. When you enable mm-hmm. EKS runtime monitoring for an account, guard duty continues to analyze and generate security findings based on VPC flow logs from EKS EC2 nodes in the account. As this helps guard duty to continue providing security coverage based on threat detection capabilities that are unique to VP, VPC log coverage. You familiar with that? Yeah. When you're talking about things like uh, Kubernetes, this is something that it's basically what we are talking about for the Lambda functions, but it's similar where it'll allow you to monitor what's happening within your Kubernetes environment. So what your systems that are doing that. So you've got trace points, you've got all kinds of different aspects that are available and you can drop all those in there. So as you're filtering and you're querying within your guard duty and trying to find out what's happening. You can find out if one of these systems just has a massive CPU boost. Okay, what was happening and what was going on with within Kubernetes if that happens? Otherwise, you can get what you need to without it, but why if you can do right. that? So, Well, what about this? I see PDFRS or it's Guard Duty Initiated Malware Scan. Apparently, they have a malware module that detects malicious... Activity indicates potential presence of malware in your Amazon EC2 instance or container workload and generates findings that invoke guard duty initiated malware scans. So I guess that's if you have an EC2 farm, it would make sense to have something like that. It can. It's Again, it's going to be one of those things where it always sparks that eternal debate of, is this going to be intensive on my systems? Is it going to cause network lag? Is it going to cause, if I enable this and it's scanning this constantly because it's agentless and what is it looking for? How do I fine tune that? And then you've got the engineers and anytime you turn something like this on, you're always going to have the team of engineers and the team of developers coming to you saying, we have a problem. It has to be related to the server lag being bogged down by your scanner. Turn it off because it's messing things up. And then you have to be able to go through and prove that it wasn't that. <laughs> it's a human thing where it's immediate to blame someone it's, else. It's, I was doing it's, a, it's blame security 101. <laughs> I remember it was about 15 years ago. I was doing a pen test for a big telecommunication company. And we were supposed to kick off like Thursday at, I think it was 9 a.m. Right? If I remember the time, Thursday at 9 a.m. For whatever reason, the CIO said, we're going to reschedule. Let's not do it today. We'll do it tomorrow. So we didn't do anything. We launched no scans. We did nothing that entire day. We had three members of the IT department blame us for multiple outages that occurred in the network because they didn't know we canceled the test. They thought we still went ahead with it. And so all these outages were our fault. And to see their face when the, to find out the entire test was canceled. Right. But yeah. it was immediately all three of them are coming here because they have problems. So, yeah, I've definitely seen that happen. Yep. It's eternal. And us will come to you and say 100%, this will not add load. It will not affect performance of any of your resources. But it'll still happen because it still does. I also see where they got this thing not called PDF RS. So it's RDS protection in Amazon. When analyze RDS log on activity for potential threats to Amazon Aurora databases, MS SQL compared edition. Yeah, so it's it's a that kind of does like a reputation. It watches for suspicious or anomalous log on activity yep. threat to your database. So it it'll watch databases. It'll watch things, and it, it can create reputations if it sees mm-hmm. IP addresses that that come to it. Within obviously, it's going to have your own. your IP schema already known. But when it comes to, okay, this is our VPN. This is not a VPN. This is someone accessing the database via an API that we just finished running. So it's going to run all these checks and it's going to keep balancing that out. And if it sees something, and that's one of those ones where the IT department is going to get a ticket from someone that's on vacation 
that was asked to, to fix something or to do something real quick. And they go, I have no access. I can't get into this database. It's impossible. And it's simply because it's being blocked by that. So what are some of the other ones here? So I've seen a couple of intrusions now because of misconfigured S3 buckets. Yep. S3 bucket goes- 100% public, happens uh, all the time. And we read about it in the news all the time, S3 buckets leaking data. And it's configuration. It's not like there's a weakness in Amazon. It's someone configures it to do that. So it says, when S3 data event monitoring is enabled, GuardDuty immediately begins to analyze S3 data events from all your S3 buckets, monitoring for malicious and suspicious activity. And so you would look here for CloudTrail data events for S3. There's a warning here. GuardDuty does not process requests to objects that have been made publicly accessible, but it does alert you when a bucket is made publicly accessible when Guard. It will tell you if you've made a bucket that is public facing, but if you're making it and you don't know that, then maybe you should be making buckets. But yeah, it's one of those caveats where it'll watch internal, but it won't watch anything that's already set up to be public. Yeah, it looks like there's several different things too as well for uh, several other features to help you store and manage some of the findings. For instance, filtering some of the findings through guard duty, suppression rules, working with trusted IP lists and threat lists. So mm -hmm. definitely listing out all your trouble, trusted IP addresses to include third parties. Yep. That's a kiss of death right there. The third parties. The third parties. So it's create custom responses to guard duty findings with Amazon CloudWatch events. So this is where you would have a uh, different alert in monitoring. Many ways, it's almost like you're turning CloudWatch sim in a way. It's not really a sim, but you're it's, at least having a yeah, fire off, right? Yeah, it's not so much a sim, but so much as it is a way to aggregate what's happening so that you can quickly view it within a timely fashion. But you can also take it and take the stuff that once you're getting through there, once you get what you want, you then forward those, all of the non-white noise out and start sending that to your SIM. That way you can start correlating events within there. So you've got your, your everything that you can do within guard duty is coming in and you're going to send that to your SIM. And then everything that's coming in from your mail logs, everything is coming in from EDR, all that's going to go to SIM so you can sit in one place and go, okay, I've got all this coming in from guard duty. I've got Lambda. I've got Kubernetes. I've got everything logging in my database. I know this IP address is coming in here. Where did it come from? And then you can backtrace it all the way through email within one environment if you've done it correctly. Speaking of which, that's really good information. Just from an IR perspective, just changing subjects quickly, yeah. where we had IR on-prem was always one thing. I remember yeah. starting off, I got my GCIH in 2005 or something like that, 2004. And that was all knowing scripts and being able to write different commands, be able to write that in a minute to files, and then how to batch script things all the way till you get to an EDR product. Now you do IR in the cloud, things are just so much different. And we wanted to kind of highlight that. What is the difference and how incident response guys need to switch and understand cloud a little bit better, my pros, my cons, my limitations versus what's in-prem, which that's where you start off with. And as an IR guy, you're learning on-prem stuff and some of those yeah. sort of tools. So of course you have each of the stages that you go through, aligning with previously mentioned, so you have the NIST incident response lifecycle. So that's a preparation, detection, analysis, containment, eradication, and post-incident activity. Some of those always kind of change now that you're coming in that cloud environment. Some of the differences when I tried to look up what were some real differences that security is a shared responsibility in a cloud environment. It's just not a use. So you may have a third party that's monitoring your platform as a service and providing it to you. So it's not just your responsibility. It's actually shared, depending on if you had what we had before, what right? the IaaS, the PaaS, and the SaaS. So mm -hmm. those three different models. It's a shared responsibility, and it definitely needs to be considered that way. Difference number two, cloud service domain. The difference in security responsibility exists in cloud service. It's a new domain for security introduced incidents was introduced. The service domain, which was explained earlier, encompasses a customer's AWS account, the IAM permissions, the resource metadata, the billing, and other areas. 
It's different from for instant response. So it just seems like all of that, you have billing services in here, you have API calls that occur. There's just the entire realm from that perspective of what's in there seems to be much different. Yep. APIs for provisioning everything. So it's APIs for infrastructure as a service. So for instance, to on-prem access control, these credentials are not necessarily bound by network or Microsoft Active Directory domain. Credentials are instead associated with an IAM principle instead of an AWS account, which is a different <laughs> mentality of understanding how access rights are done within the cloud. These API endpoints can be accessed outside your corporate environment. Before, you would have to have an IP address permit and give a VPN, give them a user ID, and then they have to have all that stuff to be able to do this. Now, you just need to be able to hit an API, have credentials to authenticate, and you can really extend, get past all those layers and extend a functional access to some entity on the other side of the world. Yep. And so it'd be interesting to understand who's hitting that. So having a firm understanding of IP nature of AWS, where the log sources are for responding to those, what is the API gateway that you're doing? You're exposing APIs. How is that configured? Which ones are they doing? How is that kind of governed? I want to say is the difference number four, dynamic nature of the cloud. The cloud is dynamic, allows you to quickly create and delete resources, which can auto-scale. Resources can be spun up and spun down based on increases in traffic. One of the problems in cybersecurity is with short-lived infrastructure, fast-paced changes, a resource that you're investigating will no longer exist or might have been modified already. Understanding, understanding the ephemeral nature of AWS resources and how you can track the creation and deletion of these resources will be important for incident analysts. You can always use AWS config to track the configuration history of an AWS resource. There's another idea. Instead of going through CloudTrail logs yourself or the CloudTrail management logs yourself, so there's a panel, on, it looks like AWS config, in order to be able to look, at, look through that some of that information. It says difference number five, and I only have two more here. Difference number five, data access is also different in the cloud. You can't just plug into a server in order to collect the data you need for an investigation. And again, data capture in a cloud environment for something you need to be able to take a look at or have a forensically sound copy of, much different than before. Data collected over the wire and through API calls. You need to practice and understand how to perform these collections over these APIs. So using a curl script in order to be able to hit an API to pull some JSON files or whatever. It's mm -hmm. not normally an IR person's wheelhouse but that's more of on the dev side in, in most cases, but now how that's invading the incident response space, right? Yeah, 100%. And then it's saying just difference number six, important of automation. For customers to fully realize the benefits of cloud adoption, the operational strategy must embrace automation. And infrastructure code is a, infrastructure as code is a pattern of highly efficient automated environments where AWS services are deployed, configured, and reconfigured. So I think they talk about facilitating some of these servers using AWS cloud formation or third party. This pushes the implementation of incident response to be highly automated, which is a desire. So I think there's other cloud formation and so forth. What do you know about cloud formation for doing IR runbooks? Is that where I would do that at? Yeah. So when you're talking about how do you create your cloud instances, you're going to break that up into, I think, a couple places. So you've got your, you're going to have your platform team. Your platform team are the guys that say, Hey, someone comes to them. They go through change management process to say, I need this. I need this instance spun up for XYZ that gets approved. It gets sent off. And then platform team goes, boom, spun it up. Then they go, okay, great. They pass that over then to the security team. So typically what you're going to have is you'll have a run book for both sides of that house. Here's the proper procedures for creating that. Here's the proper procedures for securing that. And, and this is best case scenario. Like this is honestly like for a larger environment. If you're a small house, this should have, this should all be included. So this is how we do it. And as we do it, we're securing it as we're building. Um, and that should be best practice for IT anyways, but it should be verified by the security team if that exists. If not smaller team, everyone checks it out. There's checks and balances in there. And it's not just one person's responsibility or ability to do that. And the reason I say that is because there's a number of times where 
I've come in to a company who's been, they're in the middle of an active threat. And I come to find that the reason that this threat actor was able to get in is because someone at some point, Steve, the admin guy over here, turned on this Linux box to patch it. But that Linux box is 14 years old and hasn't, but he forgot to turn it off and it's public facing. And so now you've got this random box sitting out here. Nobody can figure out how this guy got in. So there, there has to be that, that, that balance. Of, okay. If you're going to turn it on, if you're going to, we have to make sure that it's added to monitoring systems. Yes. You build it, create it, secure it, monitor it. So tell me, just from your experience, are you familiar with Amazon Detective? So Amazon Detective. So yes and no. Amazon Detective is good-ish for doing what limited thing you need to do. If you're asking... I see it says that it's used to investigate any ongoing activity using time-based analysis or specific period with the incident was identified to identify any deviations from normal operating baseline. Yeah. So that's given an environment where you know what's happening. Amazon theoretically knows what's been going on in its environment. So detective works fairly well within that small space. But if, again, you'd have to take that information and still correlate it off of everything else going on. Because honestly, unless everything you have is 100% Amazon, it's all sitting here and you have no need for a SIM because you're solely reliant on this, Amazon Detective can be very effective for you in trying to narrow down a timeline of events for what's been happening anomalistically. Anomalistically. Yeah, that's a coined term, like strategery. Um, But when you're talking about the grander picture, you're trying to understand whether or not there's been infections, you have ransomware on your Windows systems, you have things like that. You need to pull all this from SIM and theoretically in a perfect universe, you can get them from both or it's already there. Tell me this. We have some other technology vendors. I heard at RSA, whiz.io. Yep. I heard stuff about foundational risk assessments, graph visualization, task surface reduction. looks like automation development tool, detection and response across multiple cloud providers. So what do you know about whiz.io? It's one of those companies that gives you visibility of all of your different environments. If I remember correctly, they're like a single location to have everything come in. It's very similar to what we were trying to build a long while back when we were working for CoFence was trying to have the ability to see all of our platforms in one dashboard. So an abstraction of all the different cloud environments. To- yeah. So it's, okay. think about, you can take and you can scan different things. You can look at different things. You can, it's essentially gives you the ability to communicate visually with different entities that you have running. I don't know much about it outside of that, but it's like a, I would call it like a platform dashboard for cloud security. So everything that you have running cloud security can come in and you can see it. Yeah. So where would be the best place for some of these resources for people to learn when they're, let's just say they're an incident response person. They want to learn more about a cloud and how to get the hands on. It's like, not like you can just go and start your own AWS account. Yeah, you can't. That's unfortunate (laughs) because you try to Yeah. Honestly, there's a, I, that's another thing I've noticed in a huge trend over the past few years is all of these different areas and places and platforms and stuff that you can use to learn and figure out and watch people do. Cybrary, honestly, I used to go there a long time when it first came up. They have a lot of really good content in there, but there's resources online that you can watch. Honestly, there's so many good YouTube videos on different things on how to set things up, how to compute. If you're talking about wanting to learn best practices for things, honestly, within an IR space, when you're studying the attack kill chain, focus on each individual piece of that and then learn what's in there. So when you're talking about this, how do you learn? How do you learn how to configure your cloud trail? How do you go through all these? Obviously, there's SANS, which is 
you know, not everybody can afford to do sands, but they have and some more. Of the best training in the world. First sands I went to is twenty two hundred dollars. Yep. Fifteen years ago. Yeah. I know. I just I just took a longer than that, course recently and it was not cheap. But the content you get out of it is pretty tremendous. Yeah. But again, it's one of those things where sometimes you're able to I was lucky because I had an admin that was able to kick up some different uh, environments mm. and allow me to kind of mess with them a little bit in different uh, platforms. Which is um, what I got to do. I got to get my my lab up to speed here. That's it. Yeah. Many times. And I'll be honest with you, like one of the main things I use here is a massive pile of laptops that I'm constantly burning. I build different platforms. I'll put different operating systems on them. I create different kind of virtual machines and I mess with them. Can I create a VMDK and then take that VMDK and can I dump it into this environment and actually kick it up and mess with it? Can I do this? It, it's just a matter of sparking what what interests you in that space and concentrating on trying to find mm-hmm. it. The information's out there. There's a ton well, of information. Tell me what keeps you up at night Oh my God, what keeps me up at night is a long list. I go to bed at midnight and I wake up at four every day. But to be honest with you, one of the main things that that I always tell people is the number one thing I always hear people say when they're asked that question is, man, people, people are the number one cause of all my headaches. And, And I agree that to a certain aspect, but honestly, if you're watching your data, you don't have to worry about the people. Watch your data and you'll know what's happening. The people will mess things up all the time. So you can 100% rely on the fact that people will mess things up. That's a given. So that's no longer a surprise. You can't be surprised if a human being in your network messes something up. So we all can agree to that. So what's legitimately keeps me up is understanding what people are doing on the network with admin level access visibility of what's happening who's spinning what up who's turning what off who's running through the vulnerability scans and what's happening with all that information there's a lot of security tools in an environment especially a large enterprise environment not everybody knows how to tune them not everybody knows how to use them not everybody knows what they're doing I think that's the biggest advice here too. We're seeing it's people are tool happy and I see the blinky box syndrome and it makes so much difficult. And they think that if I just give you all these different platform systems, that somehow security has no excuse to say, well, we weren't able to secure the environment because we didn't have this shiny box. And so you have more tools than anything. It's amazing. Some of these big pharma clients and they have tools upon tools. And now the security operations center, which we back up and we met, we help monitor, manage. And we're saying, well, tell us what is what activity from that gets generated that you want to know about. Just throw it in the SIM. And like the SIM will automatically figure it out. Yeah, the SIM is the brain. That's going to tell me what I need. And it's just been crazy. And then the EPS costs for Splunk and Securonix and all these other platforms go through the roof. Yeah, yeah. If you're logging too much, you're sending too much there. Instead of saying, okay, this is my different targets that I have. This is the login configuration I'm going to have on it. And I want to know when this activity occurs. Let's just say it's a Zscaler or something like that. What out of Zscaler do you want the SOC to know about? Yeah. It's like about it for a minute. You want to know. Someone goes to a bad site, goes to a pornographic site. Is that really something the SOC? Is that something the SOC needs to log or can you just set up an alert? It triggers a ticket when that happens, and then it doesn't have to go to the SIM at all. So I think there's some of those responsibilities that need to go to other departments and don't need to be monitored for the SOC. We end up having to monitor just about everything. I I, I can't agree with you more. I think that one of the things that I I noticed that, that kind of scares me when it comes to this type of technology, SIM, EDR, things like that, is that IT wants to take control of this. And they need to understand that is a security tool. It's not there to monitor the performance of your system unless you specifically need to make sure it's not being turned into a botnet. And it's always fun dealing with them. Man, I'll tell you, Martin, it's been great talking to you. Unfortunately, we ran out of time today. It's always like that. We get to the point where like, golly, I can continue going. (laughs) So it's all day. 
It's great having you, brother. I'll have you back on the phone again, man. And Semper sure. to always have a brother Marine on the show. So yeah, absolutely. I enjoyed it. That's a good. It's always good to talk security. And please log correctly. Number there you one. Go. Number May one. The log and be with you. And for everybody else out there, I appreciate everyone signing in today, watching the show. Don't forget to subscribe put a comment in here we still have a poll out there wanting to understand what some people want different types of shows we did a show last week on security jobs and what's the de- demystifying them i've had a lot of comments on that what is a forensics guy versus incident response guy and so forth but uh, just keep up with the linkedin channel we'll be posting more content and you'll see it on the youtube for this video as well so thanks everybody and stay secure now don't forget to hit like subscribe Comment, share, and turn on those notifications so you don't miss an exciting episode. Thanks for listening to this episode of Cybersecurity America on the Voice America Business Channel. We hope you've learned some valuable information to help you be a better executive leader and navigate today's complex world of cybersecurity. Until next week, stay secure.